be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today we are looking at the 16th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 14, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 7, episode 15, or what the German regionalization team named Lonely Souls. I'm your host, John. In episode 14, the lawman and inhabiting spirit Mike drink coffee on their way to the Great Northern, where he'll say no to a lot of people and pass out when Ben Horn nears. At Harold's apartment, Hawk finds Harold dead and diary pages strewn everywhere. Maddie tells Sarah and Leland that she's going home. Bobby and Shelley go through her bills, and Leo says new shoes which points to a micro-cassette in a boot heel. Audrey confronts her father, who admits to sleeping with Laura. Shelley quits her job. Nadine happily breaks a milkshake. And Audrey tells Cooper what she knows when Cooper is going through diary pages, which leads to Ben Horn's arrest just as he was about to finalize a deal with Tojimura, who reveals her true identity later to Pete. Incoherent Sarah climbs downstairs hands first, sees a white horse, and passes out while Leland checks himself and Bob in a nearby mirror. At the roadhouse, Donna and James talk about Harold and listen to Julie Cruz, where Cooper, Harry, and the log lady pull up to a table. The singer fades, and the giant arrives, but only Cooper seems to notice. The giant remains until Leland and Bob successfully kill Maddie Ferguson. A wave of sadness washes through the roadhouse, and your host was never quite right again. Now, this episode of Twin Peaks is obviously massively important. I mean, it's it's one of the, um, probably, I mean, it's it's definitely in the top five episodes of Twin Peaks as a whole, counting season three. And, um, it's, it's one of the most important. It's one of the, one of the biggest turning points as far as, um, you know, the, uh, and anything important. I mean, the, the thematics, the, um, the lodge lore, I mean, everything is in this thing. And, um, the way that Lynch, um, directs this and that Mary Sweeney edits it, um, I mean, it's, 
I mean, if if you're only going to watch three episodes of the of the original series, this is still going to be one of them. I mean, it's that important. And I'm trying to put it together with all the stuff in the future. It's um it's it's fairly easy to do, honestly. Um so I mean, as as tough as the material is, though, we still have to actually look at it, even though we kind of think we know everything already. Uh, so what questions are we left with? As the darkness breaks through, what secrets are unearthed? What marked Maddie Ferguson to death? What roles do the supernatural characters play? What is Bob? So before we do this, um, before before we look into those questions, we have to do the normal, <laughs> the normal part about looking into the behind the scenes uh, information that we know about from when this episode was actually made, and from a structural standpoint, we get right away that Lynch decided to change scenes around so that it would. Um, go outside of the normal commercial break structure of like every like every act being around 12 minutes or so we've got we get uh here three short acts that ratchet up ben horn ben horn's guilt followed by this massive 19 minute long fourth act where ben horn is arrested Catherine reveals herself to pete and the lawman and margaret go to the roadhouse while leland kills maddie at his house so right off the bat, we get Lynch basically acting like a painter and just, um, you know, making the mood do what it does to get to, um, you know, the, um, the, the final act where everything just goes topsy-turvy. Now, there's a couple of um, actor notes that I've read here and there. Um, I mean... It's fairly well known that Dana Ashbrook wasn't actually supposed to be there on the the day of recording. So, like, him, Bobby being sad in the roadhouse is a complete, um, you know, quote-unquote happy accident um, on par with most of the stuff. Um, there's another uh, accident in that, in that uh, scene, too, from the Red Room podcast interview with Julie Cruz. Um, Cruz basically said that... Um, you know, Cruz moved too much. And, um, I think this is after the recording and, you know, she's like, yeah, David, why didn't you tell me? I mean, come on, let me learn. But you know what, what Lynch did instead of, um, retaking it with, with Julie Cruz is that's how he decided to have Donna mouth the words. Um, so yeah, I mean, Julie Cruz basically said, that's why Donna's mouthing that because I was moving too much. David likes accidents. So, I mean, yeah, as much as it would have been nice to see Julie Cruz, like, emoting more, which she is great at. Also, one of the notes that I do remember, like, you know, even even after I've only seen this once, and, um, you know, it was before... It was before, you know, the season even ended or before I saw everything on Bravo again. Um, I still remembered um, Donna singing to James in that way. I mean, it really helped um, add something to the scene. So, you know, again, another happy accident. A happy accident not to be 
uh, Lenny Van Dolan uh, went up to Lynch um, with an idea that, you know, I mean, it, it didn't sit right with him about Harold hanging himself. And then, you know, he mentions this idea to Lynch about how Harold could have gassed his orchids and himself and they'd find him among his orchids, you know, lying on the ground. Lynch basically told him, Lenny, never come to me with a great idea 12 hours before shooting. The beam is already up there. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't always quite work out in Happy Accident Land, but, you know, we'll take we'll, we'll take the ones we get. Then another picture that got painted about how the crew just has to work in these scenes, no matter what scene it is. Um, Grace Zabriskie in uh, Essential Wrapped in Plastic was talking about how once she was on the floor in her scene, her positioning was very important, so she stayed there between takes. But, um, you know, she discovered that once an actor's on the floor, they become part of the carpet, and it's marginally dangerous what uh, what the crew ended up doing around her. So, you know, I guess uh, some things got pretty close to her head or something. So it's like, you know, it's like, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tight ship trying to, trying to take care of all that stuff. And, you know, I, I'd continue on in this kind of um, happy anecdotal vein, but um, this is this is an important episode, and it has the important question for Lynch. I mean, this kind of soured his experience for the rest of Twin Peaks for, I mean, conceivably years, <clears throat> at least until he kind of regrouped and did the season two finale. But um, yeah, so it's famous that Lynch didn't want to kill the Golden Goose by revealing Laura's killer. And, um, you know, uh, to his credit, Mark Frost didn't either. They both thought that it would be bad for the show to reveal it. So um, both of them pushed it back as far as they could into the November sweeps uh, month. I, I think where they differ is the Frost actually did understand that they had to, they had to reveal it eventually. You know, whether whether it was you know at the end of season two or what, um, he basically said in reflections that you can't keep tap dancing forever. And that was sort of David's inclination. Why do we ever have to tell anybody who killed Laura? I said, because, David, they're going to hate you if you don't. And then he laughs. And that's kind of an interesting um stance for Lynch to take anyway, because Dwayne Dunham said that while they were all on the cutting room floor for Wild at Heart, Lynch asked every oh yeah, and this is before he came back to direct episode two in season one. Um Lynch had asked everyone who killed Laura Palmer. Then they all wrote their picks on index cards. The index cards got sealed up in an envelope. And then uh Dunham said that, you know, sometime after the reveal happened they opened it back up. So in that way, Lynch was okay with having an answer back then, back back in season one. But I guess he just had an issue with the revealing. So I, I kind of wonder, it's like, was that, was that magic envelope supposed to kind of have all the ideas and maybe that was something that Lynch never wanted to actually open up? I don't know. But um, yeah. Maybe that was his way of having a mystery box once he finally decided who the killer was with Frost. Now, that said, um, there's kind of a, a revolving question of, you know, who knew what and when did they know it about, you know, the killer? It seems like no actors and no crew knew. 
And um, that Frost even commented that no family, not even ex-wives knew. <laughs> Philip Carneal in Reflections talked about how um, when, when they were doing their mixing, uh, the curtains blocked outsiders um, from being able to see in. And then Lynch wanted the mixers to mix the killing scene blind without pictures, you know, to, to not reveal the killer on screen. He was very paranoid about the whole thing. Um, but uh, Neil convinced the Lynch that, you know, it's like, you just can't do that. You can't sync up sound with, with visuals if you can't see the visuals, you know? <laughs> so uh, th there was a lot of pressure at that point and a lot of secrecy going around. Um, Though I will say that Robert Engels in Twin Peaks Unwrapped said that we had known Leland was the murderer for most of the year during the show. About five of us knew. So extrapolating on that, it's Mark Frost, David Lynch, Jennifer Lynch, Harley Payton, Robert Engels. You know, I mean, it would make sense that the, that the main writers would have to know in order to, you know, seed it over the course of six episodes or so. Um, when did Peyton and Engels get brought in? I mean, anywhere between episodes eight and episodes 11, that would be my guess. And as far as how they feel about the reveal, um, or I mean about, uh, you know, the, the identity of the killer <clears throat> and the way it was done, Engels had this to say about this episode. You might think it's kind of unsatisfying. We had to do it. And no one wants to do what you have to do. And then Peyton says, I think it's foolish to think one could never answer that question. I mean, you're not really respecting your audience that way, but I think it could have waited until the end of the second season. So I think they would have been perfectly comfortable and happy to push it back again as well. And as far as the, the secret being kept from the cast and the crew, um, that made it right up until after that year's Emmys, uh, when this episode was produced. And, um, you know, Twin Peaks had kind of lost uh, any number of them except for uh, three of them. And I can't remember exactly which three off the top of my head, but none of them were for acting and none of them were for directing. Basically, Lynch, the day before the murder was actually shot, um, he brought, he brought, um, himself, Mark Frost, Cheryl Lee, Richard Bamer, and Ray Wise into the room together. And, um, you know, Ray Wise is fond of recounting it in uh, many different places. And, you know, like he'll, he'll say, you know, Lynch told him, it's you, Ray. It was always you. And, um, you know, Wise considered not doing it because he had a daughter who was just born in 1987. Um, you know, the idea didn't sit well with him that a father would do that to his daughter and then kill her. And, um, you know, I mean, from a practical stand of, uh, uh, from a practical standpoint, um, he, he didn't want to leave the show. Leland has been this amazing character for him to explore. And, um, you know, it's like, why why in the world would he want to go into this willingly but you know lynch in that meeting said but ray it's going to be a beautiful thing and lynch describes the tunnel of light with laura at the end etc that's all seen in episode 16 which um 
Which to me says that Lynch was absolutely involved in the plot all the way through episode 16 for how Leland's end happens. And, um, you know, does this, does this end up all the way absolving Leland? No. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about that later, but, um, but the, um, the important detail I get out of that is that Lynch actually was involved in episode 16. Cause there's this, there's this whole contingent of fans that, um, you know, once episode 14 happened, Lynch checked out and, you know, like, uh, Frost, you know, put on his own ending <laughs> on 16 or whatever. But, um, you know, it's like, that's not, you know, Frost isn't just rewriting what Lynch did here. You know, that Lynch was in lockstep with the whole process that, um, you know, Leland was going to need to get to for episode 16. And, um, you know, of course, Frost wrote this episode, too. So, you know, it's like Lynch and Frost were in lockstep about how they wanted to do this. And it wasn't about how the show revealed. It's about the fact that they had to that soured Lynch. Now, as far as the murder, the murder scene day, um, it was a 14 hour day. Cheryl Lee got killed three different times by Ben and then Bob and then Leland. <clears throat> and in um, Twin Peaks Unwrapped, Richard Bamer said, I was first, which was kind of fun because that sort of set the blocking of the scene. I don't find it difficult being evil. It's fun doing all that. And, you know, I mean, plus, uh, Bamer had the thought that, you know, he wasn't the killer. And that means by necessity, he wasn't leaving the show. So, you know, this wasn't breaking his heart. This was just a day at the office trying to figure out a very complicated uh, thematic day. Now, you know, Bamer didn't have the problems playing the evil, but he did have the problems doing you know like doing the scene in particular and in essential wrapped in plastic he said i found it incredibly brutal and not needed just to do it was not fun cheryl lee was not having fun so yeah i mean he he felt the gravity of the scene too but um but where he did have the fun was the fact that he had the advantage of trying different things with Lynch and the scene got blocked out with Bamer. So, um, you know, when Silva and Wise did it, they had room to be creative in their own ways, but the blockings were already there to follow. So in a way, Richard Bamer actually imprinted on this episode just as strongly as any of the other three um, characters in that scene. Now, Silva, for his part, was absolutely exhausted, and he said in a couple of places, including Essential Wrapped in Plastic, um, that, you know, it basically ended in this animal, you know, he ended in this animalistic state at the end uh, after just doing it once. Um, he, he said that the slow dancing part, um, Lynch's directions were only dreamy. I want to dreamy. Make it dreamy. and. Um, he directed all of the all of the murder scenes that way. He wanted the whole thing to kind of have that have that lodgy vibe, you know, even even the two uh, physical world guys. And granted that got Silva to play it in a sexual and animalistic kind of way that um, you know, completely clobbered him, but um then there's Cheryl Lee who had to do it three times. 
Now, in uh, Cheryl Lee has said this in multiple different places too, but um, I like how she said it in Reflections. I had a doctor once who brilliantly taught me that when one is acting, the only part of you that knows that you're acting is your mind. And it's helped me tremendously ever since. Every other part of you does not know that it's acting if you go for the truth of the scene or the moment. So if you're crying, your mind knows you are acting, but your body is still releasing tears. It is still going through the chemical changes of the body. So you're experiencing fear like I was that day and in that scene. The chemical changes in my body, the chemical changes my body goes through are the same ones that one goes through when one experiences real fear or whatever primal response it is we're having. We're really having it. And I mean, I feel terrible for her because, you know, like the next morning she had to roll out of bed. Um, You know, like she couldn't even lift up her legs or arms. She had to like physically log roll out. I mean, like I, I can't even imagine how difficult this was for, you know, an, an actor who's, uh, fresh to the whole thing, you know, it's like Ray Wise and Richard Bamer, you know, they, they were part of the studio system for years. They kind of had coping mechanisms for how to, um, you know, separate your acting life and your real life. And Shira Lee is still, uh, really brand new to this whole thing. And like to have, to, to have that kind of experience. And, you know, I mean, sure. What she'll have in fire walk with me is even wilder, but, um, you know, this is not something that I would want to do for 14 hours in a day. And I really commend her for being able to do it and for putting her whole soul into this. So we've looked into a good chunk of the production history. Now, how, you know, I mean, all, all the investment that got put into this, how did it actually fear when it actually aired on television? I mean, from a personal standpoint, I avoided mirrors for a very long time after this because, you know, a 12 year old, um, you know, there, there's a there's a mirror in the bathroom that I had to kind of dodge around for a little bit because, you know, it's like, who wants to see Bob looking back? And, uh, <laughs> you know, the imagination is uh, uh, fairly impressionable, uh, impressionable at that age. And, uh, yeah, I did not want to be turning into Bob and like. I um I talked about it a lot in um in my coverage of the secret diary. Um so I'm not going to like overboard it here, but I mean this this was one of those moments that um I'm never going to forget. And um yeah, as far as um as far as November 10th of 1990, it was a Saturday and um this event was heavily promoted at least a week and a half um, before this. So, um, you know, the last episode could have gotten a bump or whatever. Um, this episode, um, a lot of people came back for it. You know, that's that's one of the reasons why um, uh, Philip Gerard says that whole line about, you know, the, uh, the Great Northern, you know, many rooms made of wood, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like he says a verbatim, just like the end of, uh, the previous episode to kind of um, bring people back to it. And um, how many people came back to it? It was about 17.4 million viewers, which was about 6 million more than the week before's 11.3. So this was the best rating since the season two premiere. Um, you know, the, the season premiere had 19.1. So it's still a 1.7 million viewer drop from that point. 
Um, but you know, all told it was still the fifth best ratings of the whole show. Um, you know, just, just, to show how middling the ratings actually were, no matter what kind of reputation it has now. Um, essentially what happened is that, um, this ratings boost, um, brought its numbers up like a little over a full month. So, um, it gained an extra month before, um, ABC wanted to cancel it. And, um, this was that shot in the arm that saved it at least into January before the thoughts started over again. So I honestly think without that ratings boost for the business side of things in the middle of November sweeps, um, as the gifted and the damn podcast were fond of, <laughs> uh, talking about, I definitely share their opinion that, um, twin peaks would have been canceled way earlier had this reveal not happened. Okay, so we looked into the how it was made side, how it was received on television, and um, now we're going to get into the Log Lady intro, where um, Lynch put his final stamp on what we're supposed to get out of this episode. And um, yeah, in 1993, he was especially bitter about this whole thing. You know, he was um, he he was trying to say like how in season two he was away because of uh, Wild at Heart and all that. Yeah, you know, it's like he he was trying to kind of rewrite the whole situation at that point um, to to kind of express how badly season two it was as an experience for him. But um, did he try to say that this episode was terrible? It's like no, he lets the power of the episode remain. You know, he saves the whole you know death of the mystery for episode 16 <laughs> but here it's like he does not frame this episode in his disappointment he actually lets the episode shine through because i think even even with the worst feelings he had around twin peaks he still understood the power and the um the importance of this episode a poem as lovely as a tree as the night wind blows the boughs move to and fro, the rustling, the magic rustling that brings on the dark dream, the dream of suffering and pain, pain for the victim, pain for the inflictor of pain, a circle of pain, a circle of suffering. So the first thing I get is that, you know, the boughs move to and fro as the night wind blows. There's the rustling. Um that brings on the dark dream. So <clears throat> it kind of makes me remember this one entry where Laura is writing in her diary, the, uh, in, you know, the, that Jennifer Lynch wrote, um, you know, it's like the language of the trees, what do they know? And, um, what would the trees be able to tell you if you would just listen? And, um, that was basically in relation to, um, you know, I wish the trees could tell um, anyone what they see when um, Bob regularly brings her in there to be, you know, assaulted and raped and whatever else. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's like no one listens to her. No one also listens to the trees. But, um, but you know, up home as lovely as a tree, they both, like, David Lynch and Jennifer Lynch both basically speak the same language. Like, even though, um, even though Lynch wouldn't have read his daughter's book because, you know, he, he likes to keep his vision, his vision 
and tries to kind of stay away from outside influences. You know, even though he's probably never actually read that poem, like they both kind of understand how trees work in a similar way, I would think. And um, and this log lady introdu- introduction also ends up connecting to Margaret's log, being able to hear things. But um, but because Margaret's log is disconnected from the forest, it's also unable to understand so much. But uh, yeah. I'll be talking about that a little bit later on about her log. Now, also, there's this circle of pain and suffering. Um, it's not quite pain and sorrow, the definition of Garmin Bosia, but um, yeah, the pain for Maddie is understandable. We know what that means. Pain for Leland, um, I kind of think there's a part of his humanity not being. Um, you know, strong-armed or heavily influenced by Bob that might actually have a little bit of regret in here. And I have a feeling that's the pain that um, that Lynch might be talking about. You know, the pain that um, Bob is also eating the Garmin Bosia from, perhaps. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like that's a nod toward how Lynch feels about Leland's culpability where there's also a side that, you know, he regrets, even though he's actually doing it. And, um, yeah. Anyway, we're, we're going to look more into Leland's culpability in episode 16. So, um, yeah. And now we're getting ready to look into the, um, the actual scene breakdowns and, um, you know, what, whatever we can mine thematically out of, out of the material from episode 14. So, um, yeah, before that, we're going to take a break and listen to words from our fellow podcasters on the Ruminations Radio Network. We know you've been scared watching horror movies by yourself. Well, now you don't have to. Hang out with Ruminations of Red Rum, all things horror from movies to the latest spooky games we've played. Come hang out, but hurry. The killer's behind you. All right, welcome back, and here we are. We're getting ready to dig into this thing, so uh, buckle up, I guess. Uh, I mean, the first major question focuses on the town of Twin Peaks as a whole, and um, the question is, as the darkness breaks through, what secrets are unearthed? And, um, I mean, this episode is basically filled with a lot of different transitions, and. it's it's almost as much about what happens when states change and how do they change and um i'm going to i'm going to frame this question that you know it's like sure darkness is breaking through something bad is happening but um you know secrets are kind of coming out of the process and um you know harold's transition is into death and um in his death harold's secrets and private work surface from a plot point of view, that means that they contribute to the quest for justice for Laura by giving more evidence that points toward Ben Horn, though it also gives evidence that points towards Bob. Um, and, you know, it does contribute more, um, including with that French phrase um, in episode 16 when Donna catches Deputy Andy talking about it. Um, so, you know, that that's it from a plot point of view. but. Um, as far as how it's shown here, um, you know, there's this transition shot of the mountain with a, a lone uh, 
a lone speeding police car with its lights on, you know, running, you know, driving down the road of the mountain. We get Hawk knocking twice. He calls out twice, opens the door, and then he surveys the scene, which has, um, you know, flowers everywhere in Harold's apartment, you know, strewn about with a whole bunch of different pages ripped out. And um, is that just Laura's diary? I don't know. But, um, you know, it's it's definitely Harold's work all all ripped apart from its binding. And then Hawk sees Harold himself, um, the the hanging body in the greenhouse. And um, Lenny Van Dolan's on record that those are not his legs in that scene. So, you know, who knows if it was a crew member or what. But uh, yeah, regardless of who it was, Harold is 100% dead here. And, um, you know, with his death, the pages are exploded in front of anybody for them to see. Now, cosmically, this would have gone unnoticed if Donna hadn't had the uh, the supernaturally given information to visit Harold in the first place. But um, also, it wouldn't have needed to end in Harold's death either if she hadn't been so invasive about it. Um, you know, I mean, she could have just gone to the police when she knew that Harold had the diary, and then they could have come in with a warrant about it. But... Um, you know, is is it worth it for plot points that end up leading to Ben Horn's arrest? Um, you know, that'll that'll eventually lead to that's how they lure Leland into the police station. Um, and I guess Laura's words would have risen to the surface one way or the other. Um, so I can't really quite put it all together. I mean, there's um, there's the visual way of how. Um, you know, the pages are there. The writing is like literally being seen as you enter a room. So like, you know, it's like Laura's words are um, thematically um, demanding to be seen. Though, I mean, those same words would have still been unearthed slowly by a warrant. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's tough to understand. I mean, I guess it's the Jeonum uh, Solitaire line on his... Um, on his body after he committed suicide that is the thing that um you could say halfway justifies that um it had to go so far that he had to kill himself and who knows maybe this is supposed to also be for donna to grow from um because donna actually grapples with the guilt of this you know it's like a lot of people say it's like oh she killed she killed harold which she did do essentially um, I mean, he made the final decision, but she kind of helped push him in there. And, um, you know, at the roadhouse in this very episode, she and James, uh, in, you know, like one of the last quote unquote peaceful moments before the energy breaks open, like a bomb, um, you know, it's like, they're listening to rocking back inside my heart. And Don asked James if he heard about Harold Smith and he says, yeah, and it's not anybody's fault. He was a sick man. So. I think he's trying to comfort Donna here um, and that like, you know, he was going to do it anyway or something. I don't know what James is trying to do here. Um, just oversimplify it for a teenage brain who can't actually deal with uh, actually looking too deeply at it. Um, <clears throat> but Donna tries to explore this um, before, before Maddie gets killed. Um, you know, she says, I think he was hurt inside in a way I couldn't figure out. 
His whole life was inside that house, and I violated that. He's dead. He didn't deserve that. And, um, you know, right after she expresses her guilt, this is when Truman, Cooper, and Margaret walk in, and she says, Sheriff Truman. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like, I, I don't... I don't know what to say about that other than she expresses her guilt. She expresses her truth. She feels it. She, um, she has an observer while she does it. So like after that, um, I don't know if maybe she just buried it and fell into the music or not, but, uh, you know, at that point more singing happens. And then the next time we see her, she's completely given in to the music in the air. Uh, you know, the music in the air, um, and she's mouthing the words of the Julie Cruz song. All right, let's get to some of these other folks. We've got Nadine, and in in delusion, that's her state of transition. Um, she ends up revealing to Norma how Ed cares for Nadine. <clears throat> so they're entering in the um, the double R, and um, you know, Ed convinces Norma immediately to say that, you know, it's like, oh, she's only worked at the diner six weeks instead of the 20 years that um, Nadine's like, oh, you kid her. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, we get we get Nadine uh, redefining things and showing how she's redefining things as she goes. Um, you know, she says, get dragged away to Europe or someplace for a month and it feels like forever. So, um yeah, like instead of it's it's not the tonsillitis that was her original excuse for why she was in the hospital. And um you know, it actually was forever. It doesn't just feel that way. Uh it was twenty full years, Nadine. But anyway, she she orders the two chocolate milkshakes and then she asks Shelly if the, she goes to school with them and um you know, then she doesn't know if the house is hers or if it's ed's parents and um ed just says that's right <laughs> so you know whatever nadine needs right now he's giving her and um you know nadine asks norma if uh if if norma is okay with her and ed being together and um you know then she says eddie told me you broke up and he looks so ashamed by this next to nadine and um you know, Norma notices this completely. Um, you know, it's like even even when Ed has a chance to completely redo everything and uh, restart with, um, you know, it's like, oh, I wish I could have told Nadine when she was younger. Um, you know, like all, all those regrets that he had, you know, looking for an annulment and everything. And yet here he is doing the exact same thing. And Norma completely knows this now. Now, Nadine is absolutely happy, and she feels nothing but happiness, and I'm sure this is that adrenaline thing that gives her the super strength, but, um, you know, she's so happy that she crushes a milkshake, and, you know, she says, there goes another one, so I guess she's been doing this with glass for a long time at this point, and, um, you know, Nadine holds her hand right in front of her face while she's, like, turning on her spinning diner chair, and, um, you know, she just looks at this for a long time, and it's that same dead look uh, with the fridge door. So it's like, I think Nadine is like sort of trying to process that she actually has super strength. And, um, you know, she just can't quite put it together. 
But then she says, oh, Eddie, I'm so happy I could just kiss you to death. And then she tries to actually do that for a few seconds. And, you know, we've got um, the the great comedy of Everett McGill's uh, like bugged out, bug out, bugged out eyes. Um, and it's absolutely uh, funny in that way. But, you know, this is a scene fueled by all want. And, um, you know, it's it's like lodge space fueled how that want um, expresses itself in our world. And um, <laughs> when she's done kissing him, Ed says, oh, boy, Nadine. And while Nadine is looking down like she's having trouble with something. And um, I kind of wonder, is it the shake on the table that she's trying to figure out? It's like, what is that? You know, the thing that she just broke or. um you know, like instead of how did it get there, it's like maybe she's wondering like why she's having problems with her vision because she'll say that out loud in a few episodes um, that, you know, she can't see out of her left eye and uh, or her right eye. I can't remember. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting how things end up mirroring things. And then, of course, we've got. um I could just kiss you to death is basically what Bob does to Maddie later on too. So um, with all the scenes that have nothing to do with, um, with Laura or Maddie or Leland or Bob, um, there are all these mirrorings that happen as well, kind of like reinforcing the themes of the episode. Now also there at the double R is Shelly and, um, while caught in a financial trap, that's her state, um, Shelley learns the truth about her easy button plan and how it's not quite as easy as she thought it would be. What does she end up doing? What's the transition that uh, she has to do? She has to kill her job. At the double R, Shelley reluctantly quits, and Norma is actually incredibly supportive here. Um, you know, Shelley says, I just feel so bad. I love you. I love working here. I don't want to let you down. And then um, mirroring um, Leland's reaction from Maddie uh, when Maddie says that she's going to leave, um, Norma says, you have your own life to look after. I'll be fine. When you're ready, you can come right back. So, um, yeah, I mean, she's basically saying the exact same kind of things that Leland is saying, except that in this case, Norma honestly 100% means it and she feels it and she's being true. The, the fear of letting go, as you say, comes, uh, from Shelly and also from Sarah in that scene. Um, but, um, you know, it's like the fear side of things comes from the person um, who needs to be assuaged by someone saying that it will be okay. And, um, yeah, and it will work out between Shelly and Norma because, of course, you know, Norma is coming from love. You know, she's not saying something to cover over secrets later. You know, this is actual love being grown between those two women. And as far as why Shelly has to quit her job, it's because of Leo. And um, in a coma, that's Leo's state, uh, Leo ends up inadvertently exposing some of his secrets. Bobby and Shelly are at a table with Leo. It, it looks like all three of them are pouring over the bills trying to make a budget. But, you know, it's like um, 
Shelly and and Bobby are finally looking at all the physical evidence of Bill's um, and, um, you know, trying to figure out literally, you know, $42 for a whole month. How are we going to make it? And then, you know, Bobby points out how young he actually is. Uh, He says, we I can't keep telling my parents I'm staying over at Mike's. And then, you know, Shelly kind of understands something here a little bit. And she says, we meant me and Leo. Bobby, you said you were going to take care of us. And, um, you know, then she tries to say, you know, it's like, I want you to take the necklace back. Um, you know, the, the police impounded Leo's truck, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's like, there's all this stuff that, um, you know, they can't do to get quick money, but Bobby, you know, in business with him for drugs, knew that Leo was in the money and that it had to be hiding somewhere. And, um, you know, he puts this question out that, you know, it's like, where is Leo's money? And then Leo screams at this point, spits, and then says, new shoes. And, you know, so, um, you know, Shelly's like, Bobby, he's alive. But, you know, Bobby pulls a hair out of him and stuff. And he's like, he's not alive. And, um, you know, Bobby actually t- takes that hint and says, you know, it's like, find the receipt for shoes. So I kind of wonder, is Leo actually in a coma state responding to a question with information that he knows? You know, it's like, like, like he finally gets a question that he has an answer to. And he's like, oh, you know, here's the question. I have an answer. Here's the answer. So, you know, is he actually helping in a Dougie way where, you know, he's reactive? Um, you know, I mean, he's, he's very insular and like he has these things going on that like he can't actually express himself. But because he's in this coma state, like it's almost like that no mind state that Carl Eckler always talked about in, uh, in, um, uh, counter Esperanto podcast about uh, Dougie and a no mind state where like, you know, it's like it, it's like reacting to the scenario that you're given right in front of you. And, um, you know, Leo being in a coma, he doesn't have any of these physical concerns anymore. So why would he have any um, physical concern for worrying about keeping his secrets covered? You know, it's like he's just going to say go here. So I kind of wonder about that. And, um, you know, later on, um, what happens with it is Bobby, Mike, and the shoes, uh, all show up at the same time. And, uh, you know, Bobby and Mike don't use nicknames with each other. So when, when Mike said that he was done in episode two, I really think that he was actually done. And, um, you know, it's like, they don't need to use bopper and snake anymore, uh, because they're not, being influenced by that drug culture anymore so you know it's like there he is mike the late leo johnson and um you know he puts a box of shoes in front of leo's face and he's like you know uh leo says new shoes and you know bobby's like no old shoes so you know they've got a little bit of a comedy routine going on (laughs) and um you know, Bobby's just trying to trigger more responses from Leo in that, you know, maybe he is like a Dougie, uh, Cooper Dougie kind of personality. Uh, but Mike isn't waiting though. I mean, he just wants to Bobby to get a hammer and then Bobby breaks the heel off of the, uh, the shoes. And that's where they find the micro cassette. And, um, 
this is where Leo leans his head back a bit, almost in a Bob throwing his head back kind of way. But um, then it looks like um, Leo is staring at Mike and Bobby. So, you know, is he doing it in a, um, like, you know, it's a, hey, stay away from my stuff kind of way, like where Leo's instinct is still protective of that? Or um, is that just his way of acknowledging that, you know, it's like you guys are, um, you you guys got my message. But, you know, (laughs) what message was received? Bobby basically ends the scene saying, well, it's not money, but who knows? So, you know, it, 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 it's starting them off in a right, in a possibly more positive direction. All right. So next up, we've got Catherine who is near victory, which is that she's at that particular point where she has her plans and they are finally coming together and she is near victory, which is where she feels safe. And because she feels safe, she can reveal her secret to Pete. And, you know, we've got Blue Pine Lodge in the dark. Um, you know, it's a full moon, but it's fully obscured by clouds. So that's very thematic as well. Um, this scene needed to be after Ben Horn's arrest due to Tojimura's presence at Ben's arrest. And, um, you know, also being in the final act, it makes a lot of sense to put it, put this random uh, <laughs> racist reveal right here too, because it's a um, a worldly reveal of a hidden identity within an identity. So you know, it's thematically, and you know, technically, we're still not exactly expecting that from Bob. So you know, it sets the table for the Bob reveal in a really strange, disarming way. That you know, hey, we just saw something like this, and you know, yeah, it's um, it's just interesting. You know, even down to the the big bear hug with the forced kissing. You know, um. Except this time it ends in comedy rather than tragedy. You know, we've got Pete in the dark preparing a snack and, you know, he hears sounds, but he continues. And then he stumbles into this, um, you know, standing still Tojimura who kisses him when he drops his dishes. Um, And, you know, that Pete dropping his plate is the second instance of, you know, shattering, uh, shattering dishes or, you know, like like how Nadine broke the... um, you know, Nadine broke the milkshake glass while extreme kissing and hugging of Ed. So, you know, there, there's all these events rhyming, especially, um, especially when it comes to supernatural moments, but especially with the, um, the comedic moments, they always end up resonating the most with all the thematic, uh, you know, stuff at the foundation level. <clears throat> So, you know, we've got Pete revealing herself to Pete now. I mean, uh, Catherine revealing herself to Pete now after saying a few more things in Tojimura's voice. Um, but, you know, you know, she's playing with Pete, just like just like Bob and Leland are kind of playing with Maddie. Uh, and except this time she says, you know, dummy, it's me, <laughs> which is wonderful. I, I just, you know, is as hard to deal with as Tojimura is, I mean, it, it's really good how um, how Catherine is just playing with everybody here. 
and you know <laughs> the the process of Pete's understanding is pretty uh pretty solid with how gradual it is too you know it's like now hold on fella and then you know Catherine, you look terrible and then you know the laughter while he's saying it just terrible so yeah i mean um in this case the uh the revealed identity implies a return from the dead um so it's again another inversion of what's to come because of course maddie will be going to death now on a much darker level we've got We've got uh, Benjamin Horn, who is caught by Audrey, and um, he gives Audrey secrets when questioned. And as a result of those questions, um, he gets arrested by the end of the episode. So in the scene between him and Audrey, we've got, you know, the Great Northern. It's his office. There's a fireplace transition shot. And um, Audrey says, Daddy, I know about One-Eyed Jacks. And, you know, he denies this. You know, she um, she says she knows about Blackie, about Emery, about Ronette and Laura and, you know, the perfume counter and everything. And um, he does he still doesn't admit it. He's he's kind of like, you know, um, what do you call it? Like dodging around everything until she brings up prudence and he knows he has nowhere to go now. So, you know, he looks away. He understands that he's stuck. And um, because he's been caught in the most um, the most official way possible, um, he'll answer anything. You know, he says that he's owned one eye jacks for five years, um, which is the same length of time as Andrew Packard's death planning. You know, the planning of uh, Andrew Packard's death anyway. So, like, does that relate? Was that happening around the same time? Uh, were they writing the same kind of energy? And it's like, who knows? But um, it's it's another one of those rhyming moments between uh, Ben and Josie's um, plans and or um, dark dealings. We find out that Ben Horn knew that Laura worked there, but only for a short time, he says, you know, like that makes it better. Um, he didn't encourage her to do it. Um, didn't know that Emery had sent her, but he did sleep with her. And, you know, he doesn't answer until the second time that Audrey asks. So, you know, two questions or the the question twice, that means it's more important. And uh, we he he does answer his daughter. And, you know, it's around this point when um, Ben looks at his desk where there's a gold framed Laura with a black border around it instead of the uh, the creamy white color um, of the one in the Palmer house. So, you know, it's like there's the there's the differences again, you know, the light and the dark. And of course, Ben has the dark version. And, um, you know, the, this picture of Laura almost invokes um, a little bit more uh, presence or the, the present, you know, like Ben, Ben is a little more attached to the present when, um, when he's looking at that. And then Audrey is asking, you know, it's like, did you kill her? And then, um, you know, it's like, how does he feel about Laura? Uh, especially when he can actually see her image. He doesn't say anything about yes or no that he killed her. He just says, I loved her. It's like, you see Laura, you love Laura. That, that's how it works for Ben when he sees a picture. And at this point in the show, you know, Audrey just stares at him. And then it goes to a commercial break. 
And I do understand, you know, from from the story of the day point of view, you know, the topics that they're talking about makes a lot of sense. But Audrey has her own trauma to deal with still. And, you know, it's barely in the periphery. Like she only mentions prudence once. You know, it's like you would think that would be a bit of a problem point for them. Um, but, you know, here we get Audrey still in full on investigation mode. You know, despite what happened at One Eye Jacks, despite the heroin, um, you know, despite, you know, it's like these are the people who work for you. Um, you know, it's like I saw Emery die. You know, it's like she could have picked anything except she's still stayed focused on, you know, I'm junior detective girl first. So, yeah, that's the um, that's that's one of the pitfalls of just being a uh, a TV show in the 90s. You know, it's like everybody has their own plot point to push forward and you're not going to get the explorations of, you know, reacting to what happened to you if you're not the uh, the victim, Laura Palmer. So anyway, we're in the sheriff's station now with Dale Cooper. He's looking through the diary. You know, we, we find out that, you know, Bob is a threat since adolescence, a friend of her father's. Um, I'm, and then, of course, I'm going to tell the world who Ben Horn really is. So it's that thing about language again with Lynch. You know, it's like the words technically tell a truth, but they can't explain the whole thing. You know, it's like you've, you've words, words explain certain things, but then they leave certain things ambiguous. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's what that one log lady intro, uh, was referencing where the words just aren't enough. And, um, Audrey interrupts Cooper right while he's doing this. And, you know, when two things pertaining to the same event happen simultaneously, you must pay strict attention and all that. Um, so, um, Audrey tells Cooper that Ben was sleeping with Laura, that he owns one-eyed Jacks, and, uh, you know, what are you going to do, arrest him? And, um, you know, Cooper tells her, not a word about this to anyone, and she says, okay, and leaves. So, you know, she officially has concluded her part in the investigation storyline. And, um, you know, next time we see her, we should probably begin dealing with her own trauma from the events. But uh, from this point forward, it seems like it's been completely washed away and that, um, you know, it's like the, the story is going further on. So, like, uh, we're, we're getting an identity shift instead of, you know, dealing with the repercussions from Audrey for the most part. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that that's just a TV thing. You know, I mean, even even uh, parenthood, like within the last five years, you know, it's like the 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 family, uh, the the mother of the main family. Um, you know, it's like sometimes she's running a a a a little school slash daycare for like special needs kids. You know, which takes a long time to get done, and then you know, then she runs for mayor. You know, it's like every season, like you know, you're dealing with a different kind of topic on shows like that. And um, Audrey is no different. This story arc, she's going to do this. Next story arc, she's going to be like a a businesswoman trying to, um, you know get a better relationship going with her father you know it's like we're not going to worry about the little nuances of her character from this point forward <clears throat> so a bit of a loss i'd rather note it um so anyway when um when cooper comes in i mean when harry comes in after audrey leaves we've got um you know cooper saying without chemicals he points and you know he thinks that um 
you know, Gerard's fainting was pointing at Ben Horn, you know. So remember these kind of logical leaps when he connects all the dots in episode 16, you know. It's like there's there's a lot of ambiguity even when the clues all come together. So, uh, yeah, you know, Cooper just ends that with, you know, we need a warrant for the arrest of Benjamin Horn. And um, when the 19-minute final act begins, uh, it begins with Ben's arrest. You know, there, there's crickets and night sounds. And, you know, Shojimura, uh, her her disguise is complete. Uh, Jerry has vetted, uh, vetted their bit through the Tokyo Bank, et cetera. You know, Ben would have gone into business with Catherine's alternate identity right then. And he was all ready to sign when Harry, Hawk, Cooper and Andy arrive. Um, And, you know, it's like the contract was there. Ben pretty much had a pen in hand. And, um, you know, of course, Harry has to say, you're wanted for questioning in the murder of Laura Palmer. But, you know, unlike with when Audrey caught him, when, you know, he knew he was absolutely caught. you know, Ben thinks he still has some wiggle room and he goes, you're insane. And, um, you know, Harry's uh, pretty cut and dry here. You know, it's like you can come quietly or we can drag you through your lobby in handcuffs. And, you know, (laughs) Ben tries to appeal to Cooper. It's like, you know, Cooper, you know, it's like you, you, and then, you know, Cooper, all, all he says is you better do what he says. So, that's when we get Ben reverting into a full toddler mode here. You know, it's like, go away, get out of here. Come on, go on. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like he, th- he thinks about eating. It's like, I'm going to go out for a sandwich. And, you know, that's when Hawk and Andy restrain him. And he's got a lot of, you know, no, no, which, you know, I heard a lot from my toddlers when uh, when my kids were younger. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's 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 pretty funny how. um he thinks he can just, you know, push his way through because oh, I'm rich, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we've got um, Ben Horn kind of paying for his um, past misdeeds, even if it's kind of a misdirected um, endpoint that the law thinks they're going for here. So obviously the next couple episodes, we're going to get the conclusion to um, what happened after Ben gets arrested. But um you know, at this point, we're we're pretty much done with the um, with the B characters, and um, or with the B plots, <laughs> and uh, now it's pretty much time to start answering other questions. And uh, the next big one is, what has marked Maddie Ferguson for death? And honestly, I think that the final straw here is telling the Palmers that she's leaving. You know, in the only scene in the first act that isn't directly related to the investigation, um, you know, quote unquote, directly related to the investigation, you know, it's like we we think this is a B story to begin with. You know, it's like it 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 looks like it's looking away and giving us, you know, a character moment around town. But, you know, this is this is just another priming of all the secrets able to be revealed this episode. The first thing we see on this, the establishing picture that they're focusing on is the Missoula, Montana picture that um, that Maddie will be thrown into later. So like right now, it's an inverted scene and it's absolutely peaceful. You know, we've got um, on the record instead of the, you know, like the the sounds of the skipping, the uh, the circling. um, Yeah. Instead of the sound of like nothing there. And it's the end of the record. We're at the beginning of a record. We've got Louis Armstrong speaking about, you know, giving love a chance. 
And, you know, uh, if if lots more of us loved each other, that solves lots more problems. So, you know, it's like there's nothing but love here being brought up by everybody, including the record. And, um, you know, later on, we're going to get absolutely none of that love there. And there's going to be an absence where the love used to be. Um, so yeah, right now the record player is kind of on this positive frequency doing what happened, what, what is naturally happening. Um, though I guess at the end when the record is skipping, that also naturally happens. It's just really bad for the needle. And, um, you know, it's after, after the sounds comes the, um, the end. So, I mean, there's this, um, there's this picture in that room too, with the, uh, the gold frame picture of Laura that I mentioned. Um, you know, so it's like, almost like, you know, Laura's sort of there in this scene too. Um, but yeah, at this point, um, you know, Maddie is picking up a picture when, uh, Louis Armstrong begins singing. So she has coffee here too. And, you know, she's wearing the blue rose robe again, just worth noting the scene where she actually is sitting down talking to uh, Sarah and Leland, the camera is still in the room where the murder is going to happen, where the horse will be. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's looking on from the next room, giving, giving Leland and Sarah and uh, Maddie this moment to sit along the edge of the window um, with the sunlight. Maddie introduces her talk with them with Uncle Leland and Sarah, and it's the same exact thing that she says um, when she enters the Palmer house later uh, for her death scene. And we've got her saying, you know, I've enjoyed my stay, but it's really time to go back to Missoula, her job, apartment, you know, these things that she, um, she says, you know, I missed have I, I miss having a life of my own, basically. Um, so I think I'll probably be driving back home tomorrow. And she doesn't absolutely say that um you know she's going to she says i think i'll probably be driving back home tomorrow so in a literal sense she's absolutely correct about what's going to happen uh yeah even though she was just kind of trying to be polite here um now sarah's surprised here um and you know she's kind of you know like oh uh bub, bub, you know, like you know she she gets there eventually but it's more that leland rolls with it you know and we we've got this slow camera creep um going from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen and um you know it's like when when um when this starts it's focused on the gold framed laura pick and then it ends up going through the record player as they talk too um so Sarah, as she reacts to it, you know, she thanks uh, Maddie for being such a wonderful help. And um, then Leland tells Sarah that, you know, and now she has to think about herself. She's got her own life. And besides, you'll come back to visit, won't you? Of course. So, you know, you know, we, we've got we've got Ray Wise sounding like he's saying the exact right things, except he's kind of sculpting it in that, you know, patriarchal, you know, father knows best kind of way where, you know, it's like, you know, he's going to tell it like he sees it. And this is how it's going to be from now on. Now, um, as, uh, as warm and fuzzy as he's coming off in this scene, as understanding as he is, um, 
based on the end of this episode and the next two episodes, seeing Raywise anywhere from this point forward could absolutely stop me cold in my tracks. Um, you know, like he Raywise has so many sides to his acting ability. And, you know, in this first scene, you know, he's so seemingly enlightened and supportive. And um, it, it's in that, you know, I know the answer and it's this kind of patriarchy way. And, you know, he seems like he's an ally here. Um, yet roundaboutly, he is coming right out and saying that, you know, Maddie is disconnecting from her support system. And, um, you know, the, this is what we're going to get. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like they're, um, they basically get swallowed up by the record player for a minute as the camera passes through the record player. So, you know, that kind of, it, that implies to me that, you know, it's like you're the one way on one side of the record player and then you're kind of another way on the other side of it. And, um, it's interesting that that's kind of thematically there as well. It's around this point on the other side of the record player when Leland says, just remember, we love you very much. And then he kisses her hand and Sarah kisses her too. And, you know, it's like, are they all under the spell of the Louis Armstrong song? You know, it's like, while the, while the music is in the air, you can, you can kind of fall into the music in a way. But, you know, being, being who she actually talks to, it, it's kind of like what's actually happening here is that Maddie is declaring her coming absence. And, you know, um, with Leland being uh, either a container to Bob or um, in, you know, partners with Bob and, you know, Bob is just basically his familiar now. Um, you know, it's like what what does Leland think about an absence? You know, is it, if, if an absence, you know, how is death different? You know, it's like a fun use of these feelings and energy. Um, and also it's an affront to Maddie, not wanting to be Laura, probably, you know, it's like, how rude you don't want to be in the role of my daughter, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, Maddie, Maddie is basically taking herself from her protective circle here. And um, Bob relied on her playing a part, basically. Um, you know, it's like there's all these people here imbuing her with Laura energy. And, you know, Maddie admitted to James last episode that she kind of liked it, you know, being imbued with all this Laura energy. So, um, you know, here she's pulling herself back from the one person who's going to kill her. And, um, and you know, that that says a lot because at this point, you know, she's she's filling the family role of Laura, you know, it's like, she also has the precognition and, you know, the, the attachment to dreams by seeing Bob, you know, it's like, she's, she's filling that role of Laura's, um, you know, she disguised herself physically as Laura in season one to get the tape from Jacoby. Um, you know, the, the two Bob visions, you know, she's connected to, um, she's connected to Laura through the Bob visions that, um, Leland may or may not be able to be attached to who knows. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you swear off your family according to the way Leland would probably see it, and um, you know your your bad dreams might just come true that way. Now there is that one that one beat that hasn't dropped yet, where it it seems like things happen in threes. And you know, last episode Maddie said goodbye to James. This episode she'll say goodbye to her aunt and uncle. 
And then probably we would assume with the way stories work in television, next episode would be when she would say goodbye to Donna. Um, that's all I can think of. And, uh, you know, because, you know, the, uh, the way Cooper got his uh, giant clues answered, you know, it's like the first episode of the season two, the second and the third were when he got one after another, the answers of those three things. So I kind of think it's supposed to be falling into that rhythm. But um, in this case, because of the way this episode ends, um, you know, whether whether or not Maddie was actually going to be talking to Donna, it's kind of like how, um, yeah, it's kind of like how um, Dale Cooper got woke up from his dream by Audrey's phone call and um, Bob wasn't able to get in his face completely. You know, it's like it got cut short right before... Um, you know, we could see Bob attacking uh, Cooper physically, just like he did uh, with Ronette's um, hospital vision and um, Maddie's uh, vision after the song. So, you know, it's like there, there's like an interrupted beat here for Maddie here. Um, you know, so like we don't know if she's actually sliding Donna or not. Because, yeah, later on in this episode, you know, they, they, uh, Donna and James finish talking about Harold's death. And, um, after that, James switches over to Maddie's leaving. And, you know, it's like, yeah, she's going to go home. Uh, and, you know, Donna's only response is, that's weird. She didn't say anything to me. So, um, and the other rhythm that it kind of reminds me of is the stuff in season three where there's, there's these three things, but only two of them are seen. And then like one of them is an absence, kind of like, um, um, the, um, the three kids who got abducted, you know, there's, um, there, there were, um, there were three children abducted. One of them was Carl Rod. One of them was, uh, Margaret Colson, who was, you know, the log lady. And, um, then there's this other guy called, um, Alan Treherne. And, um, you know, it's like, that's the missing one. Um, Al, you know, we, we never actually saw him. It's like, there's always three, but one of them is kind of an absence. And in this case, um, Maddie had three goodbyes and one of them becomes an absence. Okay, now we're at the next question, which is what roles do the supernatural characters play? And um I want to start with Laura's picture. You know, the the in the the last scene with Maddie, you know, it's like the um <clears throat> the the picture of Laura's in the door frame or I mean in in the frame of um you know, when she's asserting her independence and, you know, Laura feels like an approving presence here. Um, it's also possible that she's a separating presence, you know, the, the duality, um, separated once and for all, like maybe that was, um, maybe that could represent how, um, Laura's presence isn't part of Maddie anymore. <clears throat> Though, you know, you could also see it as Laura's presence is still part of Maddie. It's just in the periphery now. And um, it's not quite finished with Maddie. Which, I mean, okay, maybe. Um, you know, what What does um, what does that picture do, f you know, for Ben? Um, you know, during Audrey's questioning, you know, between the did you sleep with her and uh, did you kill her questions, um, that's when Ben sees the picture. Um so it's gold frame, same as the Palmer house picture. Um, but you know, he's got the black border. I talked about the, the duality there. Um, but you know, what does the, uh, what does the picture remind Ben to do when he sees her? Um, 
you know, he, he said, I loved her. So love is all he can remember to think about when he sees Laura's picture there. <clears throat> so, so far, seeing Laura's picture, it almost invokes a certain kind of love. Um, but what does it do to Leland? Um, you know, it's like when, when he's, when he's punching Maddie in the face, uh, uh, when she's on the couch, um, you know, he punches her twice and, um, then, um, we see her quickly, but then, you know, she's obscured by Leland's back. And the only thing we can see, um, outside of Leland's back is that same gold framed picture with the cream border, um, you know, just over Maddie's shoulder. So, you know, it's almost like Laura is there, uh, mourning Maddie's, um, waning presence, but it could also be kind of invoking Laura into the scene because at this point, um, he kind of, he kind of pulls back. He becomes more Leland than Bob at this point. And, um, you know, he heaves up Maddie into an embrace and, you know, they start dancing and then he calls, he calls Laura twice. Um, you know, it's like, he might be mourning that Laura's gone at this point. And, um, you know, maybe that picture reminded him that she's gone. And, um, like, he's almost feeling love for Laura, too, except, of course, it had that weird, um, you know, sexual appetite part of it, too. Yeah, so anyway, it seems to be invoking Laura's presence every time that she's seen, which, I mean, makes a lot of sense. But there's also a certain level of, um, this is how I loved Laura, that, like, people who can see it, um, you know, begin thinking about. So almost, I wonder if she's kind of there as a mercy. Um, but I will say in the end credits, um, the homecoming picture of Laura's that is there isn't, you know, instead all we get is Cooper bathed in red, you know, still watching from the roadhouse after he doesn't understand the giant's message. So, um, you know, whatever Laura's presence did for the others that seemed to kind of push them in a positive, more open direction. Um, you know, she wasn't there at all for Dale Cooper. And um, he's left lost. And she wasn't there at all for us either. So we we are also left lost at the end of this episode. Now, in this episode, there's a lot more traditional lodge spirits, too. Um, and I kind of wonder if, um, you know, it's like Lynch, he kind of has these ideas personified as talismans almost. And um, I kind of wonder if, um, if on Mark Frost's side, he thinks about it more in like a Jungian dream interpretation kind of way, where um, these lodge spirits these characters almost represent parts of a divided self um so you know it's like do do all of these care do, do all of these lodge spirits need to be integrated into um into one thing into the dreamer um i almost feel like that's how frost tends to think about um lynch's um the, the characters that Lynch um, brings into the show. And, um, you know, it's like he's all, uh, Frost is almost interpreting Lynch's dreams and, like, uh, adding meaning to these characters. Um, 
that that's just kind of how I see their working relationship and how I'm generally approaching the lodge spirits as I make this show. But I'm also going to break down, you know, like what do these characters do in the show too? Um, so we have Mike and I'm going to stop referring to Philip Gerard as Mike eventually because, you know, the Mike persona seems to disappear after a certain point, but, um, Right here, I'm going to call him Mike because that's what the show knows him as. So, and, and you know, I mentioned this before, how the Blue Rose Task Force's mission was to find Judy. But, you know, for, um, for Mike, we have him not just looking to find Bob, but to stop him. Um, but, you know, we have Mike not being able to ultimately do that because of physical exhaustion. You know, he falls over at the beginning of this episode. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Cooper interprets that as, you know, pointing at Ben Horn. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, I, I kind of wonder if part of it was due to, you know, maintaining his coherence. Because, you know, I mean, he's Philip Gerard. But, you know, th this um, this spirit might not be able to push through uh, Philip Gerard um, for too long. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe the fire just burns out and needs to be replenished. You know, at the beginning of this episode, we've got at the sheriff's station, you know, it's the lobby. It's all the lawmen plus Mike drinking coffee together, you know. <laughs> so, you know, they're all preparing their agenda with fuel of the positive. Um, cause you know, coffee is always associated with, um, you know, making, making leaps in judgment, like through intuition, probably, you know, it's like, it, it's like a fuel for that. Um, and you know, everything's set at the great Northern, you know, besides telling Ben Horn, apparently, um, you know, Mike goes into, uh, the description that he used at the end of last episode, you know, it's like, uh, the, um, the um you know many rooms made of wood blah 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 <laughs> and uh you know hawk hawk talks about how he's gonna go to um harold's house with a warrant so you know they're 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 talking about how they're going to follow up on the supernatural side of things and they're going to follow up on the info that donna gave to harry uh last episode um and then you know cole interrupts uh, everybody you know it's like gordon is on the way to bend oregon you know really hush hush <laughs> so yeah, he's not going to explain where he's off to now um but his only word of advice is coop take care of mike so they they have this certain like attachment to this lodge spirit and uh this, this compassion for it um you know which makes a lot of sense you know compassion coffee it all kind of goes together but, you know, by the time they get to the Great Northern, you know, there's the sounds of all these bouncing balls everywhere, the total chaos. Um, you know, it's it's unplanned percussion. And, you know, it rhymes a lot with the skipping record later. And we've got the, the panda Mike where he's looking around and saying no to everyone. Um, and I, I find it interesting. Doc Hayward is actually sitting next to him uh, with Cooper and Harry sitting next by, you know, or nearby. Um they're kind of all witnesses for Mike's work. Um, later and and later on, we get the same witness, uh, the same kind of witness structure. Later on, you know, it's like we've got, um, you know, Cooper and Harry sitting around a table witnessing the Giants' work, 
um, except instead of Doc Hayward, you know, the, the representative of the physical, uh, we've got Margaret, who represents kind of the, uh, the connection of the people to the spiritual side of the town. Um, and, you know, we've got um, sailors here being brought one by one in front of Mike. And, um, you know, th then we actually see Tojimura brought up, you know, way before the reveal that she's Catherine. Um, you know, Mike says no to Tojimura, too. So, like, we get it officially written down. Or, I mean, uh, <laughs> we, we have it officially said aloud now that um, Tojimura is not with Bob. And, um, you know, at this point, we've got, you know, Ben running down with a you know, cigar steaming, almost like a freight train. And, um, you know, Mike begins convulsing as Ben gets closer. But um, an interesting detail is that there's a body with white gloves um, and a black coat that doesn't have the gold around the arms like all the other sailors. Um, and... Um, you know, that that's what walks across the screen as Mike kind of uh, tips over. So I almost wonder, was that Leland? Was that a nod to Leland at that time? Um, you know, we, we never get to see because there's a wide shot of the room showing all the chaos where, you know, and this is when Ben finally makes it into the scene, uh, even though we don't see him. And you know, he's like, what the hell is going on? So, you know, it's like total chaos. I mean, I guess from that point forward, he's just resting for the rest of the episode. But, um, you know, just, just thinking outside the plot here, it's like, what would happen if Hawk had not uh, apprehended Gerard? You know, it's like, could could Mike have actually found Bob and, you know, done done what Sternwood was unable to do, which was restrain Leland in some way? Um you know, I mean, we, we can only hypothesize that so much. But um, the, uh, the other question I have is um, Mike's independent presence, recognized by people outside of where uh, Leland is, um, does that pretty much prove that Bob is at least in part a responsible party to Laura's death? Um, or... Um, or is this just basically a way to say that, you know, around portals is Mike part of uh, Laura's manifestation of the supernatural that she, you know, puts around herself to keep the truth away from her that it's actually her own father? <clears throat> you know, it's like there, there's ways to look at these uh, Lod spirits, you know, it's like especially with that whole um, dreamer um you know, being represented in, in pieces, needing to integrate all these pieces together. You know, it's like, is Mike one of those pieces of Laura, potentially? Um, it's, you know, it, it at this point, it's completely unprovable, but there's a good avenue of thought that you can uh, take this path and get a lot of good information from it. Okay, so that's pretty much all there is about Mike in this episode. Now, the next uh, lodge genus or the lodge spirit that I would talk about is the horse. So, you know, at this point, Sarah is trying to maintain her um, awareness or, you know, like any kind of uh, awakeness. And, um, you know, Leland's readying himself for the big night. And um, Sarah has climbed down the stairs at this point. And we get the record player shot. You know, it, it's kind of an establishing shot. Um, throughout the course of the murder scene and um you know this is the second time we see it and this is kind of 
the the Sarah version of events. You know, it's like what happens with Sarah's awareness, and um, you know, it's like Sarah, she's she's struggling to pull herself through the room just by her arms. It's like her legs just don't work at all, and um, you know, it's like she she's grunting and like just um, yeah. I mean, sounds of struggling completely, and um. This is when she looks up into the room where Maddie's going to be killed. And it's absolutely empty. And it, it's kind of like the Hayward living room in that way. Like where, um, you know, it's like you, you get the shot of the mundane room first and then the spirit comes in. Um, what happens here is the white horse comes in with a spotlight. And, um, you know, it's like traditionally Bob has not come in with a spotlight yet. and um, you know, the giant has, and the giant seems to have this, um, information that leads to positive things. So, you know, it's like, you almost wonder if the horse is part of that side of things. Um, and you know, Sarah has this look on her face as she looks at the horse, you know, it's like, does, um, you know, it's like she, does she find it beautiful? Does she think it could save her potentially? Um, you know, is it going to be okay now, now that she's seen it? Um, it almost looks like she's looking onto the face of God in that, you know, Mike cut off his arm after he saw the face of God kind of way. Um, you know, at this point we haven't seen that, um, she also sees that before, um, before the scene in fire walk with me when Laura finally acknowledges the fact that Leland is her, um, assaulter. Yeah, that, that does figure into how I'm seeing it. But, um, at this point, you know, Sarah sees the horse. And then when, when we look at the horse again, the horse, uh, fades out, you know, it's like, it begins to disappear in reverse order to how it arrived in the scene. And, um, it's at this point that Sarah passes out and the camera moves from her body back to the record player. Now, I know Mark Frost tends to think of, you know, the white horse as a representation of, you know, death and, you know, a harbinger of death, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, there's other ways where it could be drugs. You know, it could be the drugs that um, that Leland gives her to um, make her completely unaware of what's happening. Um, you know, it could be a representation of mercy, too. And, um, you know, I, I, I said this part in the diary episode, too, where, um, you know, the, this horse is visiting Sarah right before she's unable to witness some terrible truth. Um, and, you know, the, the terrible truth this time is that Leland is going to kill Maddie. And the truth that she was looking away from at the time um, was the i mean of of fire walk with me was laura uh being raped by bob and leland <clears throat> so um you know is is the horse kind of a way to look away you know the horse is the white of the eyes uh you know drink full and descend all that kind of stuff so like does it represent the um the ability to look away and kind of a mercy for it um there, there is the legend of the white moose. I know I talked about this in the diary episode too, but, um, 
I, I'm going to bring it up here too, because the white moose seems to be, uh, I mean, the, it, the access guide was written after episode 14 was made. So I think that it's kind of a nod to the fact that the white horse has always kind of been around too. And we've got, um, legend has, uh, this, this was, uh, from the, um, the access guide article that I wrote, um, the, the only access guide resource you'll ever need. Um, <clears throat> about it, I say, legend has it, the moose was the lone survivor of 50 moose that were exterminated by several dozen trappers that trapped them. Now, drained of his brother's and sister's blood, the white moose appears to those in trouble because it understands the agony of sorrow and despair. So there's a lot in the legend of the white moose. As lodge denizens seem to take different shapes depending on who's observing them, I wouldn't be shocked if that meant the white moose and the white horse weren't one and the same. And in that article, I also said, I love that the melancholy and forgiving white moose appears to those in trouble because it understands the agony of sorrow and despair. Was the horse, at least during the days of Twin Peaks' original production, less a drug metaphor and more a witness to validate and understand someone's pain? I now want to go through every scene the horse is in and decide whether it could be a presence of compassion much like Carl Rod was for the unnamed mother in season three. So I really do kind of think that the white horse here is a talisman for compassion, for empathy, and for when truth is unviewable. So it's acknowledging um, Sarah's pain through this and like her inability to be able to do anything about it too. <clears throat> even though she's still able to feel pain about this. Now, probably the most ambiguous thing I'm going to bring up here is I'm going to count Margaret's log as part of the lodge spirit presence, because it does seem to be an indicator of these things. You know, Margaret's log seems to be able to read the energy, and um, it's almost a translator device that speaks of what is happening or what the um what the lodge spirits seem to be noticing um you know it doesn't explain why because that's not how words work um but um it seems to be able to um it, it's almost like a divining rod too you know it's like it it points margaret towards things that she needs to be a presence for and um yeah, you know, it's like when we see Margaret first in this episode, you know, one of those slow speed orchestra music tracks is playing. Um, and it continues from when Sarah was climbing down the stairs. And um, at this point in the story, Ben was brought in by the lawman. Uh, he was sent to a holding cell. And, um, you know, now that the worldly conclusion has been completed um, and, you know, Ben is now in custody, um, the uh, quote unquote, phys you know, the, the, the real world, the physical world stuff, um, is now something we can turn the page on. And, um, now it's time to bring in the supernatural and Margaret's log is that major indicator of it. And, um, you know, she, she can begin the supernatural response to this. So, you know, the first thing we see with her is the log cradled in her arms. Um, 
then the llama notice her and we see her face only when she says this we don't know what will happen or when but there are owls in the roadhouse and you know there's silence from everybody when she says this and um it's like everybody's just absorbing that information and then cooper says something is happening isn't it margaret and there's a close-up on her again and she says yes there are owls at the roadhouse Okay, so she knows that spirits are going to be there. She has a good feeling that um, the giant's going to be there. And uh, I'm assuming owl's pearl, plural, probably means the uh, the old waiter, too. So the log can tell that, almost like um, it's, it's able to feel the resonance of the giant in the roadhouse, uh, like coming to the roadhouse. You know, the energy is building for his appearance, maybe. Um, but you know the indicator can only follow the energy rather than um rather than decide on what the intention of the energy is because i think the intention is um what humanity brings to the whole thing that's why observers need to be there to witness things and that's why margaret needs to be part of this equation too because she needs to be the weather person and kind of um you know, follow the energy, but also explain what the energy means to people around her. And um, when they're actually at the roadhouse, we see Cooper and Margaret eating the peanuts. So, um, you know, the roadhouse is essentially a liminal space in this town, and it's definitely going to be a liminal space, like within three minutes of them eating the peanuts. So it's almost like, are they eating the food of the fairies so that they can completely transition into the realm of the fairies? You know, that kind of thing, like in in old fairy tales, like that's how you that's how you stay in the magical world is by eating the magical food. Um, so. I kind of feel like that's them preparing for the visit from the giant. Yeah, so that's about all we can say about the log. But yeah, let's talk about the giant. Um, the giant is a, and I'm not going to call him the fireman here because, you know, there's enough ambiguity about whether or not um, there's just one giant even. Um, you know, it's possible we've seen two giants already. You know, the one who... Uh, waves his hands in front of uh, Cooper's face before the giant um, appears in front of Cooper with a spotlight. You know, it's like there, there's, um, yeah, it's like Carl Striken might be playing a team of giants and we just don't even know it. And, uh, you know, maybe even Carl Striken doesn't even know it. But yeah, in this case, um, he is a deliverer of information, just like he's been a deliverer of information. Um, if he is a fireman, um, fire the firemen regulate the balance of fires. You know, it's like, um, and and in this case, he's announcing a fire that's happening somewhere else that he is letting burn. Um, you know, the the fire being Bob and Maddie, um, and Maddie is kind of the sacrifice in this case. Um, is that part of balance? I don't know. Um, it doesn't bode well for Maddie that way, but um, yeah, the um, how how the giant appears in the first place is the roadhouse band fades into nothing. The um, the giant, you know, the the strings that 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 hum that happens when the giant appears, um, that's happening, and uh, then we get the spotlight, and um, 
we see, you know, even even on Cooper's face, we can see the spotlight happening because it it's like the lighting on him changes even. So, um, you know, he's even um, bathing in the light of the giant in a way. And, uh, you know, then we see the giant on the stage lit by a spotlight. And he says twice because, you know, the uh, the most important information is always said two times in a row. Uh, he says it is happening again. It is happening again. And, uh, you know, the whole scene fades away um, onto the record player in the Palmer house. Yeah, once uh, once Bob is finished, we go back to the roadhouse and the giant is still there and he's unmoved. And, um, you know, it's a, it's almost in a way that uh, the giant is like invoking this um, this dreamlike scenario that may or may not actually be happening in physical reality. Um, <clears throat> it, it, you know, just the way everything's juxtaposed together anyway. Except it seems almost like Cooper hasn't actually seen this vision. Um, it's not like the movie that um, that the fireman would play for Andy in, in part 14 of season three. Um, it's, um, it's a lot different here. It's like, I, I think the giant really is just... Uh, just kind of bearing witness somewhere else from the murder scene to kind of almost balance out the energies. <clears throat> and, um, you know, Cooper is looking on at the giant this whole time and like, he just doesn't understand. And, um, it almost feels like, um, and and um, Spark Wooden Twenty One podcast. Steve, one of their hosts, um, he he basically says that the giant has this look of recrimination on the giant's face, and um, you know, it's like, what are you doing here? And it's like, why are you here? Why didn't you do something? And um, you know, it's like it, it's almost like it it is almost like that too. And like I I feel it the same way Steve does, where it's like the giant is kind of like. You know, it's like something has happened and you're still sitting there. But yeah, once um once Maddie's life energy is completely gone, uh the spotlight on the giant goes out, the giant fades, and the band fades back in playing um playing the world spins one more time. And um the the giant disappears in reverse order just like how the white horse did. So is um is the giant there to convey information and also to kind of uh, bear witness to mercy or is it to bear witness and imply judgment in a way? I don't know. I know there's a lot more to the giant um, and he's going to be there when he gives, uh, when, when the old waiter gives uh, Cooper coffee in episode 29 so I'm going to be keeping, uh, keeping the giant's role in mind from this scene there too. Okay, so I've I <laughs> I have pretty much exhausted everything that we could talk about in this episode besides the actual murder scene itself. So, um, yeah, yeah. the The only thing I can do to delay the inevitable is um, to to give you one more. Um, one more message from our fellow podcasters at Ruminations Radio Network. 
What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, so welcome back. We are we are back, and uh, now we have to talk about Bob and Maddie's murder. So, as far as Bob goes, let's talk about how um, you know how Bob has been portrayed up to now, and um, just in general, like what we what we've seen of him and what we you know quote unquote know. What is Bob? Uh, first of all, we can look at him like he's a masking memory, you know, the, 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 the shape of Robertson projected by Leland and, um, you know, when in range of portals, the image takes a life of its own. Um, is he the, uh, is he the, uh, proper shape of a boogeyman that Laura could have concocted in a dream? Like she may have in fact done in one of the early, um, in one of the early diary entries when Laura is talking about, you know, a long haired man and, you know, like not necessarily associating it with Bob, but eventually they get, they, um, they kind of get tied together, you know, giving a, a dream shape to a presence that she'd always had in her life. As far as the show goes, I mean, uh, they pretty much code it that Bob is a parasite, you know, by Mike. Mike calls him a parasite, essentially. Um, you know, is it a parasite that eats Leland's fears and pleasures, which are Bob's children because he grows those fears and pleasures inside Leland? Um, yeah, it's very possible. And could Bob just be a personification of evil? Um, you know, appetite without considering consequences. Um great power without considering great responsibilities. <laughs> uh, how about a, uh, a talisman of these concepts brought to life like Greek gods were aspects of human conditions. And I know that uh, Lynch considers the, uh, the jumping man a talisman. So why wouldn't he also consider uh, Bob to be some kind of talisman? You know, considering how dreamy he wanted this murder scene to play, I mean, it would make sense that there's a certain personification happening here, um, you know, represented visually the way Lynch has decided to. So as far as how we see Bob, we see him in mirrors with spotlights and slowed sounds, in visions, in the red room, under ceiling fans, through electricity flowing at different frequency of reality, possibly, and um, through fear or the, um, you know, the, the fear slash dream part of reality. Now, what do we see him do? Um, you know, he, he basically threatens in Cooper's dream to catch you with my death bag. Um, then, you know, we see him looming near beds and climbing over couches. And then um, we've seen him kill Laura in the train car. But now, of course, there's a lot to learn about what we know of him here. I'm going to probably do more of a recap style um, 
analysis at this point because it's all so important. Um, so Ben Horn has been arrested. Um, we get Sarah trying to sound the alarm after she's likely been drugged. Um, except, of course, she's sounding the alarm to the wolf in the hen house. Um, you know, the, the, um, the, the scene begins with that slow speed orchestra music. And um, it's, we see the room where the horse will be. Um, the, the focus of the camera is on this yellow lamp on the back left with a uh, red lamp on the back right, uh, which is obscured by the skipping record player that's um, mostly in focus. Um, you know, it's echo. It's an echo of the bouncing balls from uh, from the Gerard scene at the Great Northern. Um, there's this percussion that's also part of the scene itself, and it's kind of uh, chaotic. Though in here, it's kind of a controlled loop too. But it's one that's kind of unnatural as far as playing music on a record player goes. It's when everything is over. Next thing we see is we actually see that corner chair that was obscured by the record player. Uh, we see the red lamp now unobscured. And um, then we actually um, see the record player shot for the first time. And this, this record player shot almost seems like it's... Um, it's like starting chapters of this scene or it's possibly kind of doing one of those restart kind of things where, you know, it feels like it's all happening simultaneously. And if you go this way, it looks like this. And if you go that way, it looks like this. So we see that first record player shot and um, then it goes down to the floor level, which pulls back from that chair. And, um, you know, the, the chair that we just saw with the red lamp next to it, and um, and then it weaves around at floor level all the way over to the stairs where we see Sarah's arm uh, feeling feeling its way down the steps. And then we see Sarah's hair and the other arm. And, um, you know, she she's moaning a frantic Leland, uh, you know, struggles, uh, struggles down all the way to the floor level. And um, at this point, we see a shot of the ceiling fan, which means that something is definitely happening in this house. Now, at this point, it cuts away to the sheriff's station where um, Margaret talks about, you know, the, the owls at the roadhouse. But then after that, it goes back to the record player. So here we get what we talked about, that horse uh the scene where Sarah sees the horse, you know, she struggles. She pulls herself into the room by her arms. Um, sees the horse possibly possibly marvels at its beauty um and then passes out after the horse disappears at that point the camera moves on from her body back to the record player and this third time it's that same establishing shot um you know the we we basically saw the sarah version and now we're seeing the leland version of what's happening right then and um you know it, it pans to the right goes into the kind of the dining room area and Leland is fixing his tie in the mirror, oblivious to everything. And as he's being oblivious to everything, we see the, um, the, the room shot where, you know, the, the horse, uh, I'm calling it the horse shot, you know, the angle of that room where the horse appears. Um, this time it's lit normally now that we've seen Leland and, um, it's, it's all normal 
in that way, except for uh, Sarah's torso to hair uh, coming from the bottom left. At this point, we get the the roadhouse intermission, you know, the the last peaceful moments before, you know, the energy goes completely haywire and just breaks open like a bomb over the town almost. So we see the roadhouse. It's uh, we see it as a white building uh, that we see the parking lot shot. Um, the bang bang sign is from a distance. Uh, we can hear the beginnings of rockin', rockin' back in my heart. Um, you know, the, the music is in the air. Um, and then we see the very first time that um, we get to see the puddle shot of the bang bang bar sign where um, it's reflected in a puddle on the ground upside down. So that right there kind of tells you that um, there's more than just the physical world happening here. We're also seeing the reflection at the same time. And uh, Julie Cruz is singing the uh, the happy song about, you know, growing love. Um, you know, she's in red uh, on the red curtains, and there's this slightly yellow lighting that's happening on her. Um, then we see a shot where the audience is watching too. So um, at this point, the energy is still, I would say, more in the positive. You know, we we get a, a side shot of um, Donna and James's booth. Um, James is sitting there, Donna is standing, and then she blows smoke upward in the air, but then she sits down and takes a drink. So she's also, um, you know, eating and drinking the food. So maybe that's one of the ways that she captures the wave um, at the end where she, um, you know, she feels the pain of uh, Maddie's murder. You know, Donna and James at this point, they talk about Harold. They talk about Maddie. Um, Cooper and Margaret and Harry arrive at this point and they start eating the peanuts and everything. So next time we see Donna, you know, she's um, she's emptied the guilt and her romantic rival and all that. Um, you know, she knows she's kind of uh, at a clean slate. And, uh, you know, that's when she's mouthing the words to James of the song. And uh, James, you know, he smiles. He's into it. Um, then we get this time passage with with a rumble of thunder. Um, it's still in the roadhouse, you know, Cooper's table is shown and, uh, we see the beginning of the world spins. So the music changes from, you know, um, you know, let's, let's get back together and grow some love here from the one song to now, um, you know, please stay, won't you stay that kind of vibe. And, um, the, the scenes react accordingly from this point. By now, we see the old waiter at the bar next to Bobby. Uh, we see a bunch of the sailors. We see Julie Cruz singing. Um, you know, Cooper is reacting to all of these things at this point. You know, he's staying on alert for something. Um, are we seeing all this because it's the time to absorb, maybe, you know, process the food and drink, um, you know, to to um, essentially attune to the vibe of the of the roadhouse at this point um was that the time needed to um you know be able to see the giant or was this the time needed to um to miss the ability to act on bob's newest murder um you know is is this scene supposed to be about 
failing to stop something or bearing witness to um, the the tragedy of an event. So yeah, what essentially happens is the band fades to nothing, the giant strings hum, the uh, the spotlight shows up on Cooper. Um, you know, the it is happening again twice. Um, it, what's happening here is um, I I can't really get a bead on whether time is frozen or if you know people are just you know like on a slower speed or something um margaret seems to be more in resonance with cooper on this one except of course you know we don't get any um we don't get any uh scene afterward that margaret has seen the giant or she doesn't talk about him so i kind of wonder if um this message of the giant was really just for cooper but you know whoever's whoever's delivery that message is um we do finally fade over to the palmer house and um we get to see that record player shot for the fourth time and um you know we we then see the camera on leland who's checking himself in the mirror and um you know he's laughing at what he's seeing you know, I mean, not not like overtly laughing, but like a hmm, kind of, you know, like those, those kind of, you know, like I, I'm chuckling to myself kind of things. And uh, then we see the mirror shot, you know, um, we get Leland on the right side of the screen, the, the back three quarter view from us. And then we see Bob on the left in line with where Leland's reflection should be. And um I just, I just want to point out here. Um, I, I don't usually talk about Twin Peaks in, um, in other media or you know, like you know, e even fan films. I, I just kind of leave them out of the equation because it's not official stuff. But um, DJ Shadow has this album called Introducing, E N D, Introducing, um, and um, it's, it's this really creepy subliminal album that seems to be almost like talking about this like coming apocalypse that happens and then the album ends with audio from this scene um you know it starts with the hum uh you know we get the giant saying it is happening again twice and then we hear like these other sounds we, we hear the record player kick in and everything and um when when that album stops uh matches up exactly with when Leland stops smiling in himself and 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 like we get the serious face of just Leland and right after that is when we get the mirror shot where we see Leland on the right and Bob on the left so it's right at that moment possibly when he shifts over to Bob and uh yeah that album <laughs> that album gave me a chill in the middle of uh college so uh yeah <laughs> It was uh, it was an unexpected and incredibly cool uh, mo way to sample Twin Peaks, and uh, I highly recommend it, honestly. Um, but yeah, like, dude, it was uh, also very intense at the end. But back to Twin Peaks and the original scene that that came from, we've got, um, you know, the camera back on Leland after we see Bob in the reflection, and then Bob superimposes over him right then. And, you know, Bob laughs and uh, then it uh, turns back into Leland. And, you know, it's it's um, it's that moment that, um, you know, Catherine just had with with Pete. You know, it's like, dummy, it's me. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, 
you know, then then Leland and Bob are laughing after we begin to understand who Bob actually is. And then we get Leland again. Then it's back to that mirror shot. And um, both of them turn Leland toward the camera and Bob away from the camera. It's almost like a 90 degree angle from what we see at that point. And um, that is the creepiest damn thing. Uh, you know, this is, um, this is them probably noticing that Maddie is outside the house. Um, you know, it's before she comes in and, um, there's no knock and no doorbell to let, um, to let anybody know that, um, you know, Maddie is coming. They just kind of feel the energy at this point, possibly. So then we get a little bit of a further away shot from that where we can still see uh, Bob in the mirror, but we see Leland in the center of the screen. Um, and then Leland takes a step closer to the room. Um, <clears throat> and this room, it has this yellow wall color, which should usually be positive. And um, there's this white spotlight shining around and through the door frame at that point. So it's almost like this. Um, this door frame outside the room is almost acting like a portal in itself, you know, like the, the red curtains in the red room. And, you know, Leland is observing this. He takes gloves from the inside of his coat pocket. Uh, then we get the door frame and we hear Maddie's voice saying, Aunt Sarah, Uncle Leland. And, you know, as she goes nearer and, you know, she's still off camera and she says it again, more upset. Aunt Sarah, Uncle Leland, what's that smell? It smells like something's burning. So instead of getting a... Uh, you know, instead of grabbing a coffee like she did in the first scene of this episode, she smells the burning, which uh, to me says, you know, scorched engine oil, which I've kind of come to understand is like a byproduct of Lodge presence or at minimum um, a byproduct of Bob presence. OK, so now we're back to getting another shot of this door frame, and it's it, the, the door frame itself is kind of dark and there's still the white spotlight around the top of the frame and into the other room. <clears throat> and Maddie comes through uh, on her own around that corner and, you know, she um, she looks down and notices what's probably Sarah's body. And that's when she looks over to Leland and we see what she's seeing, which is. Um, Bob is there in full body first, and then he shifts into Leland, and both of them were grinning. And Leland is the one who moves forward with the gloves, hand, gloves, gloved hands extended. So, um, you know, it's like they're both smiling, they're looking for fun. You know, everybody runs. So, you know, Maddie um, is recognizing um, probably, you know, the the violence that um, is. Uh, in this person in front of her, but she also recognizes both of these men and that they're the same. So then we get that door frame shot again, still with the spotlight. Um, Maddie is screaming and then she runs back the way she came and Leland follows. You know, now the door frame is shot in a normal lighting situation and um, we hear humming too. So it's almost a precursor to the lighting change. Or, you know, that's just what it looks like from the physical reality side of things. But then the spotlight comes on with the slowed vocals as um, Bob pulls her backwards into the door frame, you know, to 
to the realm where the horse was or whatever you want to what whatever kind of magic you want to imbue with this room at this point um because it does seem like there's some kind of ritual where this room specifically has something to do with the lodge at this point and you know as bob is pulling maddie toward the door frame um the the lighting shifts and you know we get leland instead of bob and you know he's the one who actually pulls maddie into the room where she's going to be killed so um the the lighting and the sounds are all normal physical world stuff at this point and it stays that way on leland until he lands a punch on maddie um and i gotta say that um i i find tooth combs this scene and it's leland who lands every blow he does all of the physical damage he's the one who brings her into the room he's the one who punches every time um you know, even even if he's speaking as Bob, um, even if we see um, later, you know, Bob following through on punches, like we never actually see Bob doing it. So um, I kind of think this is code that Lynch is throwing in, that he is acknowledging Leland's culpability here, even though we're talking about evil spirits. And honestly, it might be a physics of the lodge kind of thing as well. It's like how, um, you know, Cooper needed Freddy to um, do the final boss Bob battle in part 17 rather than Cooper doing it. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because Cooper is on a different frequency from Doppel Cooper and can't actually lay a physical finger on him. And, um, you know, maybe Bob here can't actually touch Maddie because of that same sort of dimensional difference. <clears throat> but, you know, like I said, Leland, uh, Lynch thinks Leland is the one doing the physical violence. And, you know, maybe it's Bob doing soul-level violence to Maddie. So anyway, we do get a shift to Bob on that with the slow down vocals again of Maddie's screams. And, um, you know, we see a spotlight actually um, near Bob at this point, and we see Bob's follow through on Leland's punch. So we see Maddie running from, from the, uh, the punch. And, um, you know, the camera follows Bob as he corrals her run along, uh, you know, to along the edge of that room, you know, along the windows and everything. And he's doing this hand gesture, like, you know, bring it, bring it on, you know, like that kind of, um, yeah, like it, it's just, it's just gross here. And, um, you know, we, we hear Maddie's slowed down call for somebody help me. And, um, you know, next episode's establishing shot will actually, um, have that sound in normal sound uh, in normal speed coming from the uh the palmer house as the establishing shot and so it, it's a little extra heartbreaking to hear that happening in real time because even though this is happening in the slower speed um it's still happening in physical reality so as she's running around the edge of the room the spotlight remains on bob's back until he catches her again and um, at this point she already has blood on her lips um he grabs her at this point and um you know they're directly framed in front of the fireplace and um he spins her in some circles and uh then he like spins her around to face him and um at this point 
the the camera shifts to showing Sarah on the floor with her um, head in the center of the screen, and you know there, there's a close up that's stopping at the shoulders, and uh, Sarah is completely lit normally while all this is happening. Another way of kind of uh, signposting that this isn't just a dream, and then it's a shift back to Bob and Maddie at the fireplace. So it's. Um, it's back to Bob, who appears to be possibly laughing, and you know he throws Maddie on the couch, and you know she's on it, and she's pushed all the way back into it for a while. She's just kind of like frozen in fear, and she's just like crying and like howling and just not not in a good place at all. And um, you know we we see um, eventually Bob leaning in and rearing back a punch. And it's a hard shift to Leland with no special lighting or sound. And uh, he gives he gives her two hard punches uh, to her face. And then we see um, Maddie um, in the couch shot again where she's responding to that. And uh, uh, Leland covers her uh, visually from the camera. And um, this is when we absolutely notice the gold framed Laura picture in the background. And... Um, you know, this is where Leland almost seems to snap out of his initial rage or whatever it is that he's under. And, um, you know, he heaves her up into that embrace. And, you know, her, her feet are not on the ground at this point, And he kind of spins with her. Um, as we see Sarah on the ground uh, as he's spinning with her. And, you know, he moans Laura twice. And... um it seems like we get Leland fully back for this. You know, he's he's moaning, uh, he he's mourning this love um, that he's you know twisted into this killing scene too. And we see a close up on their faces, and you know Maddie is struggling to breathe here, and and her you know his eyes are closed here, saying "my baby," and um. You know, the, he 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 lives in this feeling for a little while, um, but, you know, as he gets more and more into this dream that, you know, he's like possibly even thinking that he's hugging Laura right here, um, he, he gets more into it and then he switches into Bob mode. And, um, you know, here's that appetite that we see. Um, you know, Bob is kissing her chin and her neck in slow motion. Um, it almost seems like he's like nursing or eating. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've made a reference to next before that that's where the golden orb, um, from the giant is sent to Cooper's throat. Um, so like, is that a place where like life force or, you know, positive energy goes? Um, is it as simple as, you know, that's where her breath is and he's eating that before she can even exhale? Is that why she can't breathe is because Bob is like eating that spiritual part of her and like closing that off from, um, you know, regular um, uh, physical function? Uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we see her mouth here and it is absolutely horrified. And um, sometimes her eyes are open, sometimes they're not. And we get Leland taking over again, and um, then Bob for a second time, and then Leland mode one more time. And um, we get Maddie's eyes are wild here. And, like, we hear, like, 
she's sort of struggling to breathe when we see it in Bob mode, but then when she's with Leland, she's really struggling. You know, it's like there's this louder, ragged way of breathing that she's doing um, to kind of show her actual struggle. And, um, you know, Leland is crying and hugging her and like shouting, Laura. And um, this is when we get Bob mode. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, a flash of light and he's rearing his head back and um i kind of feel like at this moment bob is asserting a dominance here that he hasn't had on leland since we've seen that laura picture in the shot and um this is kind of like bob deciding how you know like you know i'm in charge here things are start gonna gonna go back to me leading the show here um <clears throat> even though we see it from Leland's point of view, because there has to be physical violence here. You know, next time we see Leland after Bob rears his head back is, you know, Leland is fuming, you know, he's steaming, he's angry. Um, he's, um, he, he lets Maddie out of her grip. Um, I mean, out of his grip, but only so that he could grab her by the head and shuttle her into that picture uh, from the first establishing shot of this of of the Palmer House this episode, and um, you know he shouts. Leland says, "You're going back to Missoula, Montana," and um, then he smashes. Then Leland smashes um, her face into the glass. The glass shatters. Um, all of the music stops, if there was any. It's absolute silence here, and. Um, all we hear is Leland breathing. You know, we see Maddie spread out on the floor. Her arms are palms up like um, like a 90-degree surrender sign almost. Um, you know, there, there's, there's blood from her nose down her neck, and she seems pretty lifeless here already. Uh, then we see Leland with you know, from a shoulders up profile, he's breathing heavy and he's leaning over and you know, he's trying to do something here. Um, the, the sound of the record player skipping is, is there again. And, um, he, he, he takes her finger. It's bloody and like the, from the knuckle down, like he, he's got the exacto knife out. He, he puts the letter in. So, you know, there's that continuity detail for, for the sticklers. Um, but, you know, as he's doing this, we're watching her face and she does not register this pain at all, which means she's gone. So at this point, we go back to the roadhouse. Um, you know, Cooper, he's looking on to the giant. He's not understanding, uh, but it seems like he's waiting for the understanding. Um, the spotlight on the giant goes out. The giant fades out and the band fades in. Um, Cooper still is trying to understand here. So, um, I mean, essentially what I think is happening here is, um, there, there's this, um, this wave of sadness that happens when Bob kills somebody. Um, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of radiates out like the way a bomb would explode. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm referencing part eight here for the metaphor. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the after effects, like the, the, the buzzing, the, the tingling that I'm feeling 
after just having had to describe all that, you know, it's like there, there's this, um, there's this release that happens after, after something like this. And, um, you know, that that's what the roadhouse is feeling here. Um, you know, there, there's this, um, wash of sadness in this scene. Um, and honestly, I think it's the same kind of thing that happened when Bob actually killed Laura in the first place, except it happened when most everybody was asleep. So we didn't get to feel the initial thing. But, you know, then we saw it with how Donna just knew that um, that Laura had died and, you know, she completely breaks down in the school. Um, it, it's that sort of thing. You know, it's like a, a, a Bob kill is so like supernaturally related it's like soul related that that kind of thing is way more noteworthy than um than you know just being on a physical plane of of existence so as far as the wash of sadness here um the waiter gets up from from the bar and he heads over to Cooper and he pats him on the shoulder and says, I'm so sorry. And he has this grieving expression and then he turns away. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's probably connected to the giant, but, you know, he still feels uh, certain things, too, like. Um, you know, inhabiting spirits do kind of connect to their host in in many ways, and uh, this is probably one that um the waiter is feeling if if you're gonna assume that he is connected to the giant um you can see that margaret is feeling it too but um you know but between her not saying anything um it also seems like she doesn't appear to know why she's feeling it then we see bobby at the bar and you know he's looking up toward the ceiling with the sad confusion um and then you know Donna is just sobbing in the booth, and um, and and Donna, any anytime Donna cries, it just like hits my heart, and um, you know it pretty much seals the deal um, that we should be feeling this, and it just like yeah, uh, James doesn't know why Donna is crying. Uh, you know, did he not drink anything or eat anything? <laughs> Was he just there waiting for Donna? Who knows? Um, but you know he, he even though he doesn't know he still offers his con you know his, his comfort you know he he sits he goes across the, the to the seat next to her and um you know just holds her um bobby is left trying to understand alone and um you know it just it just makes me try to comprehend why something like this might be happening and um you know, Lynch wanted the the kill to be dreamy. You know, just just play it dreamy. And um, you know, Bob is basically from the dream, and um, you know, he's in the dream when he kills Maddie. And uh, the frequency of the dream is kind of shared by those who feel the wave of the dream, possibly. Yeah, I mean, it, at this point, it's all hypothetical. But I really feel like the people more connected to that side of things, you know, even though Donna continues to refuse it, she is sort of on that wavelength anyway, and she can still feel it too. You know, how how the episode actually ends is Cooper is regarding the singer who's lit in red now instead of being lit in yellow. And, um, you know, Cooper is kind of um, lit in red as well. And um, 
the the shot of him watching the stage um it's superimposed over by the red curtains so um has he gone to another place now in theory uh you know one where the mysteries of the red room rule or um you know has the dream superseded what he knows and like um is he kind of lost in the red room now um because he doesn't know what the giant's message was supposed to be there uh it's it's really kind of tough to know but um you know that that's where the you know um that that's where the credits um bit begins and you know next time we actually see the full credits um it's cooper there uh, in the same uh, in the same spot he was before the red curtains except now he's really lit in red like extremely so and um this is instead of the traditional laura fold uh, the the <laughs> traditional laura homecoming photo and um you know in instead of laura's theme music we get more of the world spins so in an episode where maddie dies um that's one more way to um say that like the influence of laura is leaving us and um it's one more way to say that you know this is how bob killed laura and now that Bob is killed again, Laura is gone, just like she was gone the first time. Cycles are repeating. Um, records are skipping at the end after the music is gone. You know, uh, throw a rock and you'll hit a metaphor that really works with this. All right. Well, we um, we have made it to the end, and um, that that's where we're going to leave it. Um, I'll be back next time to talk about what happens when um bob and leland take a little bit more of a center stage now that we know who who they are and um yeah till then um you have been listening to the blue rose task force podcast a production of ruminations radio network and tv obsessive radio if you resonate with what you're hearing please subscribe rate and review our show and we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as Retro Futurist Culture and Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content from many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com. You can join the hosts of uh, Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. And if you want to be part of uh, a mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode 15, the 16th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. I wish you the best of luck.
way to kind of deepen and expand, deepen the universe the show takes place in. The show takes place in. The show takes place in.